Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Sakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Before we begin, I just want everyone to know that the Italy trip is happening. We got the bookings that we needed to confirm the trip this weekend, so there are no more early bird spots, but you can still sign up to go with us. It'll just be full price. And we're so excited to see you guys there because the trip is actually over our seventh wedding anniversary. Which we didn't plan, by the way. That was not not something that we thought was happening. We realized it this week that we will be in Florence, Italy on our anniversary with you guys. So come on, sign up. Let's have some fun. Oh, yeah, this is going to be a party. Which, speaking of a party, this is one that is uh, the exact opposite of a friendly and happy thing that we're going to be talking about here today. If anything, we're talking about something that is rather, um, how do I put this? It's a little bit controversial when it comes to history. This is something that in terms of geopolitical history is still a great controversy to this day and is a constant debate in things like in South America and somewhat stains the reputation of Britain and even the United States. So that whole thing for the staining of the United States reputation, that is something that I'm going to be covering at a later time in a dedicated video because over the course of doing research for this, the Falklands War, I was surprised. I didn't even understand the scope of what was going on with this and how important important this kind of conflict was. But for anyone who is unfamiliar with what it is that I'm talking about, the Falklands War to explain, this was a 10-week conflict. It wasn't a big one. It wasn't a crazy one. It wasn't one that involved a whole bunch of major powers or really a lot of deaths. It was only something that took place over about 10 weeks in 1982 between the United Kingdom, so Britain, and Argentina, this being over the British territories of the Falkland Islands, which For many in Argentina, they would refer to this as Las Malvinas. And this was something that has been contested for literally hundreds of years. It's not just over those islands. It's also over the South Georgia Island and the South Sandwich Islands as well. And this war was something that, technically speaking, was never actually declared. It was an undeclared war between the two nations that began when Argentina invaded on the 2nd of April and it would last all the way until the 14th of June. But now, since we're obviously going to be talking about a conflict here, we need to explain the context of it, the background, because this is something that when talking about a war and territorial claims, this goes back significantly older, as I said, than most conflicts that we normally talk about. So here we go. The Falkland Islands. If we're talking about the history of the place itself, then it's something that is kind of up in the air. And you're, you're going to understand when I'm talking about this, Gabby, this is like, uh, how do I even put this? It's almost like an uninhabited island version of what you described as the history of Trinidad with just constantly being traded back and forth between different powers. So I think 
on a subconscious level, you'll kind of be able to relate to what these islands had to go through in terms of their history. So they were uninhabited. They were uninhabited. This was not a place that was occupied by any form of natives before. There are possibilities of some natives or other groups that had on occasion found it and used it temporarily for like fishing grounds in the same way that Europeans did. But there was never any kind of official settlement. There was never any kind of permanent settlement that were on these islands. In fact, the most occupied that the islands were were by seabirds that would use it for migration. So technically, technically, the seabirds discovered the island first. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is the case. And by human sight, though, they were thought to have been found by Amerigo Vespucci in the 1500s. But the first recorded landing that we have of them in the archipelago, that wasn't accomplished until around 1690 by English explorer John Strong. And his discovery would mark the beginning of a long year, year after year after year of just disputes between the British, the French, and the Spanish. Because, of course, when we're talking about the major colonial powers that were fighting each other constantly during this time, just like in the case of Trinidad... Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what we're referring to. They would pass any island back and forth like it was, um, I don't know, a baton in a relay race. Yeah, your turn, your turn. Or in this case, since some of them are the South Sandwich Islands, you know, we're talking about they're passing it back and forth like a sandwich. Who passes a sandwich back and forth? Uh, Us, when you're not willing to eat the entire thing. Okay, fine, but who else? Gotcha. Okay, you know, that's a fair point. At that point, I wouldn't really have anything else that I could answer with. And anything that I would would probably get weird as I would try to grasp for straws in order to be able to answer it. Not a good thing on my part. Either way, when talking about these islands and its history here, because of the strategic location of them, which was near Cape Horn, this made it a very good possible naval base. And so the French, the Spanish, the British, All of them were disputing possession of the islands from that point onwards. The Spanish would be the first to technically move in there and really settle things in 1713 under the Treaty of Utrecht. But the French, they were the ones who would first establish a real presence there in 1764 with the founding of Port Louis. And then unbeknownst to the French, the British constructed a port, this being Port Egmont on Saunders Island in the archipelago literally two years later in 1766. And the dispute over the islands then began when the two colonies discovered each other. So for two years, there were separate French and British colonies in this territory, and neither of them knew that the other one existed. And then eventually, they met each other and were like, what are you doing on our island? Your island? This is my island. And, well, you can subsequently guess what happened with colonial powers from then on out. They began to fight each other. I absolutely love how it never occurred to one person in history to just share. Like they could have divided it. They could, but the position itself was incredibly valuable because you have to remember that where this was located in South America here, because it's like what, 300, 200 something miles off the coast of South America, like the southern tip around where Argentina is. This is a territory that is a perfect naval base as a staging point for when you're traveling around the Cape to get to the other side, to get to the Pacific. No, and I absolutely get that. But they weren't at war with each other. There was nothing stopping them from both utilizing it. Well, it was the 16 and then 1700s. And you know what was happening in the 16 and 1700s? No, but you're going to tell me. They were going to war with each other a lot. Like every other year, there was some kind of conflict between them. And this would only escalate 
when the Spanish were discovered that both of them were on the islands and the Spanish had claimed the islands 50 years earlier. Love that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So they, um, they, were, they were not happy about that whatsoever. <laughs> so Spain and France then reached an agreement, right, where France is supposed to surrender Port Louis to Spain, who would then rename it as Port Soledad with Spain then reimbursing them the cost of the settlement. So they would pay them to leave, basically. They, they built up all this, and it's still going to be passed over to Spain, and they're just going to keep it. And then Great Britain and Spain tried to negotiate an agreement, and it didn't work. It didn't, like, the, everything fell through. Great Britain would not accede to Spain's demands. And so the Spanish then decided, well, if you're not going to negotiate with us monetarily, um, we're going to utilize force. And so they sent a naval contingent of something along the lines of anywhere between 1,400 and 1,600 troops and an armada to Port Egmont. And the small British company that was there looked at this and was like, uh, no, 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 we're not doing that. Which means this was the case of the reverse of what happened to Trinidad. I love that they did that to so many islands off of the, mm -hmm. you know, off of South America. And I guess a lot of the places in South America itself. So I think it's just a, re a recurring theme. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because when you have to think, you show up to a location with an armada and you, you're threatening it, right? How is word going to reach out? And if it does reach out, the time that it's going to take to get a response force there is going to be at the earliest days later and more than likely weeks or even months later. So do you ever think about the way this played out with islands and continents, right? Mm -hmm. With different countries trying to lay claim and even with the space race. Do you ever think about when we, if we are able to go to space and find new colony, like colonize new planets, what is going to happen? Oh, that's not a gift statement. I that's don't, a win. Well, that yeah, is going to happen. I don't think we're all going to go up there like, we are humanity. We go as one. I think it's going to be, we are Russia. We go as Russians. We're the Americans. We're going as Americans. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it's just going to be like an all-out war in space. So that's why I'm like, the aliens, they will want nothing to do with us. Well, the first thing that is going to happen that they're specifically looking for is the same kind of thing that occurred back during the early days of colonization. They weren't there that were looking for territories to lay claim to and build just regular farms. They or were stuff looking on. for resources, resources. Exactly. and strategic positions. So, yeah, basically, if we were to go to space, we would all do exactly this. Yep. So we can look at this and be like, oh, my gosh, it's so silly. They were trading these islands back and forth. But no, we do this probably the exact same thing for yeah. strategic like positions on other planets. There's all kinds of different materials that are extremely rare on Earth, but we need for everyday things like for semiconductors and other things. So if you're looking for materials in space, that's going to be the next level of, of competition between nation states is once we have proper mining technology for asteroids or other things, people are going to be going up and trying to take the resources from these in order to be able to bring back to Earth. And who knows what that will do to markets? Who knows what that will do to international competition? Who knows what we'll see? Interesting. I don't know. I love how history just repeats itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that we tend to see here over and over again, which is why whenever I like and you know what happened next, I get this little smug look on my face because you know exactly what is going to be happening. Everything is going to be a repeat of the previous crap that has already happened. <laughs> so anyway, they the, the British 
are very much angered by the Spanish showing up and taking what they saw as their island. So they start preparing for war. And as the Spanish try desperately to seek backing from the French in order to reinforce their possession of the islands, Louis XV of France just refused to offer his aid. So the Spanish then opted to compromise with Great Britain. Port Egmont would be returned to British hands, and the matter of sovereignty just wouldn't be addressed. That's it. It was way too far away and way too unimportant in terms of population or where people were that there wasn't really any way to exert real control over the islands at the time. So the powers were pretty much content to let the status quo be and let the British have their little fort on the island because it's not like they could do as much with it anyway, even if it was a kind of valuable strategic position. There's just really no way to fight over it. And they weren't going to be sailing halfway across the world to fight over just a little rock that literally had nothing on it. The only thing valuable about it was its position. That's it. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, they, they would leave it as the status quo. But the British colony would, over time, stick out and continue to be a small holdout from this very hostile mainland of South America that was still Spanish-dominated. Indeed, what ended up happening is that the British found themselves under immense amounts of pressure because around the same time that all this was occurring, you had the American War of Independence. And so Britain had to withdraw their presence from Port Egmont in 1776. And because they had to leave all their forces behind and they couldn't really afford it anymore or send anyone down, they left a plaque. Like they literally just left behind a plaque scrawled in that said, hey, this is British. This is ours. Uh, keep your hands off. Did it work? No. The Spanish Natural- were like, uh, I see your plaque and it's going in the trash. Yeah, because what happened then is Spain would effectively take control of Falklands Island after that. And then when they would leave in the year 1811, they also would leave behind a plaque. So now we have two plaques from yes. two different countries. Correct. Who takes it next? Well, this is where it gets a little bit confusing because remember how this was in 1811 that I said? Remember what was happening in the early 1800s, late 1700s with the French? Oh. Napoleon. Napoleon takes over Spain. And when Napoleon takes over Spain, it breaks all of the Spanish control of Latin and South America and all of those states in it from Venezuela, as we covered with Bolivar, when we did the Simon Bolivar episode, all of them start to break free, which means that Argentina essentially becomes a thing here at this point. But even then before that, it wasn't really a country that took over this. It was primarily other seafarers in the region. You had um, you had sealers and whalers and other people who would take advantage of the vacancy to just moor their ships near the islands and use them as a base for their hunting. Argentina would throw itself into the mix of possession claims when it would send a guy called David Jewett to the Falklands in order to claim sovereignty in the year 1820. 
and he would find several ships from different countries moored near the islands as the sealers and whalers had just taken advantage of the fact that the island was vacant and there was no government powers. So Argentina appointed Louis Vernet as the governor of the islands in 1829, which the British protested heavily. They didn't want to be like have any of this happen because now this was impeding upon their sovereignty as they saw it from 50 odd years earlier. Yeah. Wouldn't the British be at a slight, well, they might have had more resources, but wouldn't they be at a slight disadvantage having to control that from the other side of the world when Argentina is like right there? They would. But also you're talking about the might of the British Navy at yeah, this time, which I was said. already all over the world. Yeah. As soon as I said, I was like, oh, they have more resources. So. Yeah. Whether or not it would be worth it to use those resources, that was always the question. That was always the debate was whether or not it would ever actually be something that you really want to sail halfway across the world to fight over a windswept rock, would you? And that would be one of the justifications. Well, I don't want to spoil it necessarily just yet, but that would be one of the things that would lead to the war in the first place was Argentina thinking, yeah, there's no way they're going to fight over these rocks. Ooh, and then they decided to fight over the rocks. Yeah, underestimating the British will to fight over land. Yeah, yeah. So the British, though, were not the first ones to be pissed off by this. Argentina ended up stepping on the Americans' toes at this point. Because remember, America is free and it is very keen on economic relationships and trade. And it has ships pretty much everywhere that are involved in varying trades. And so when Governor Vernet would seize U.S. seal hunting ships during a dispute over fishing rights, this would piss them off so much that the U.S. would express their, or their displeasure by sending a person called Captain Silas Duncan and the USS Lexington to go down and destroy the Argentine settlement there in 1831. Duncan would show up. He would take the entire population of the port, which was recorded as being around 40 people, including Vernet, aboard his boat. And then he declared that the island was, quote, free of government. He declared anarchy. He, he like no one was in charge of this. He basically told him, you're not the governor. Screw you. No one owns these. Bye. Except he didn't say bye because he then took the entire population of the Argentinians who were there prisoner and sailed back to Uruguay. He took them prisoner. Yeah, there was only 40 of them. Wow. Yeah, that was the entire population of the Argentinian contingent on the islands was 40 people. That's Don't it. let them hear about port protection in Alaska. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. With the thing we were just watching. Yeah. So Argentina would attempt to try and regain control of the of the Falklands. But at that point, with, you know, it being a state of anarchy, these were pretty much dominated by pirates and escaped convicts from a uh, from a failed penal colony that had existed nearby. And so it uh, it didn't exactly go well for them. <laughs> Like, it didn't work out at all, right? Fast forward a little bit of time. Year is 1833. It is nearly 60 years after the British have left the Falklands. And do you know what they decide to do? What they do? Come back. Because the British are never, as you said, going to leave some land behind. They're always going to come looking for their slice. Especially if it was a strategic point, they probably re realized, hey, this is going to be super useful to us if we could just get control of it. They probably Correct. revisited it when they were trying to plan some other mission. Correct. Exactly. And so the settlers who were living on the islands were basically allowed 
to live and let live. That's it. They weren't going to be kicked off. They weren't going to be taken prisoner. They weren't going to be anything. They would be allowed to remain. And the British would instead then go and build a naval base at Stanley, which is another one of the locations inside of the archipelago. And so over the next 150 years, the Falkland would be a strategic point for the British to navigate around Cape Horn, as well as a location that was ideally located to service ships during World War I and II. But despite this strong British presence, which became significantly more strategic as time went on around the world, Argentina never gave up. It never gave up its official claims to the Falklands. It was still something that was like, hey, hey, you all kicked us out of here. When Spain fell, these were our rightful islands. And so in 1945, with the creation of the United Nations, Argentina would go and claim its right to the islands, and in efforts to reclaim them, it would try and push this all over the world. Talks about this would continue all the way into the 1960s, but nothing would ever actually get resolved. And so consequently, when we're talking about this, with the United Kingdom and Argentina, the United Nations called upon them to reach a settlement concerning the sovereignty of these islands. They had to figure it out and stop squabbling over it. Because so far, no shots had been fired, nothing had happened, there had just been minor threats and also negotiations on the back end to try and figure out a proper solution. So in response, something called the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the FCO of the United Kingdom, which considered the territory to be something that was going to interfere with British trade relations in the region, it tried to see if it was going to be possible that maybe, maybe the Falkland Islands would be willing to transfer back to Argentina. This is one of those weird things, because we're talking about Britain in the 1800s, where they're like, no, this is my rock. You can't have it. But here, we're talking about the, like the 50s and 60s. This is a period largely of decolonization. And Britain, to this day, with a lot of its territories, focuses more on the individual sovereignty of what those things want. Like A key example of this is Gibraltar in, in the southern tip of Spain, like the Rock of Gibraltar. That is still owned by Britain to this day in Spain. And Spain has been trying to get it from Britain for literally years. And what ended up happening is that they've had, I think, I can't even remember how many referendums they've had. I think they've had like three, two or three in the last 40 years or so. And every single one, it is overwhelmingly in favor that Gibraltar votes to stay with Britain. And the same thing here happened with the Falklands. They put out a vote. They had a referendum. And the Falkland Islanders steadfastly refused to accept Argentine sovereignty over the island and the FCO plan to try and peacefully transfer the islands back to the uh, back to Argentina that completely fell through. The islanders did not want to be a part of Argentina. They considered themselves to be British more than anything else. And so they did not want to just be transferred away. Argentina didn't take this too well. There are countries to this day, it comes up as like in the Caribbean nations a lot, where because of corruption and certain challenges that the countries face, you see it debated a lot on social media. Oh my gosh, we should still be part of Britain because they have more resources and they could probably do a better job. Now, this is literally just random people spouting stuff, but some mm -hmm. countries go so far as to be like, they really want that for mm -hmm. their countries. Wasn't the, Jamaica one of those? I'm not sure. 
I know exactly what you're talking about. I just, I can't remember the nation. I know it came up last year. I think it was Jamaica. One of the countries was literally saying, hey, we need the British to rule us. Oh my God. Yeah. Because if it, because the argument wasn't even for self-rule. They still want self-rule, but it was a request to have the top-down organization again of the governor general. Like they wanted that to come back in to be able to assert authority because the, their own politicians were too corrupt, I think. I might just be talking out my, out my butt right there. I cannot remember, but I, I swear it was Jamaica. Well, either way, that is something that for these Falkland Islanders, they did not want to be a part of Argentina. And they didn't want to be a part of Argentina when it was still a democracy, though it was experiencing quite a number of issues. What would happen afterwards, though, is significantly worse and would double the reasons as to why they would not want to be a part of it. Because Argentina would undergo a military coup in the year 1976. And by 1982, the country was ruled by a junta, so a military government that was headed by one person called General Leopoldo Galtieri. And oh man, when I was doing the research on this podcast episode to find this, this guy is a bit of a card. He is, he is an interesting character altogether. I know we haven't even talked about the actual war yet because that overall thing is fairly short. The background of this is just so weird. And I've never actually looked into Galtieri before when talking about the Falklands. So get this. This guy was a 1949 graduate of the U.S. Army School of the Americas, and Galtieri was known specifically for being incredibly vain. His title, as one American official had called him, was the Majestic General. He was known for being incredibly vain and self-important, and simultaneously for a lot of heavy drinking. He was an Army Corps commander when the military junta toppled the government of Maria Estela Perón in 1976. And Galtieri commanded the 2nd Army Corps that was based in Rosario, which was then during the bloodiest years of the dictatorship. So Ramiro Montesinos, who was the Spanish consul in the city from 1975 to 1977, he says, and I found this quote, that he once confronted Galtieri about Spanish citizens who had just disappeared from the city. Montesinos feared that they had been captured by paramilitary task force that were targeting dissidents. So you know what he did? What'd he do? He went and showed the diplomat a briefcase that belonged to one of the men who was missing and told the consul that the missing man was, quote, a subversive and made it clear that the task force operated under his control. Meaning he showed the diplomat a briefcase belonging to one of the missing guys and said, yeah, but that guy was a dissident. And the task force that took him out, I control, try me. That's terrifying. Like he was a threat, basically, to him. Yeah, That's exactly. kind of badass. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. 
but they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters, to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. So in 1979, Galtieri then becomes the army commander and a dominant member of the junta, controlling events behind the scenes until December 22nd, 1981, when Robert Viola, the guy who was then in charge from the junta, was then deposed in an internal coup because, I'm telling you this right now, but whenever we talk about military juntas, nine times out of ten, they are not stable. It's a conspiracy that overthrew a government, usually. And then there's usually conspiracies inside of that conspiracy to overthrow the person that overthrew the government with another member of the of like the party that always ends up happening every time. So this guy now gets deposed and Galtieri becomes president. But things do not get better for Argentina. It gets worse because the Argentina at this time was going through a lot of really bad shit. Economic stagnation human rights abuses. This was a military dictatorship that at any given point could just break out into conflict. There was massive amounts of civil unrest all over the country, and the junta needed to figure out a way that they could divert people's attention from, well, all of the issues that they were facing to instill pride and support for the government. And Gabby, if your people are angry at you, what is the best way that you could distract them? By giving them someone else to hate. Really? Think about this. Every time that things have gone poorly for a country in history, you typically see people utilizing things for like bread and circuses, you know? So it's, it's the idea of entertainment and feeding them, keeping them distracted. That's kind of the whole point. And people talk about this all the time with geopolitics and why some wars seemingly get started. Winning an easy victory has always been something in history that has been used by commanders that when their popularity is kind of starting to fall or something bad is happening and you want to take people's mind off of it, show them a quick victory, get everyone to wave some flags and boom, back in charge. Everyone is happy. Everyone loves us. Awesome. I wonder how many times people do that in modern day. A lot. One of the things that people even argue about, and I'm not going to get into the politics of all of this, but it's one of the theories behind the gung-ho attitude of America in the early 2000s was specifically after 9-11 and needing to shore up like support why it was so incredibly aggressive looking at things in the Middle East, even against targets that potentially speaking were probably not as valid as we initially imagined. Interesting. So you needed people to have support considering how bad of a situation they were in in the first place. That makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, the Galtieri regime reasoned that they would be able to provoke Argentina's feelings of patriotism and solidify the junta's authority by 
winning an easy victory against the United Kingdom and just seizing the Falklands. They thought that if they took this territory, that Britain just wouldn't simply respond. So on 19th of March, 1982, in what could be construed as possibly the first offensive action of what would happen with the conflict, a group of Argentine Marines, under the guise of being just simple scrap metal merchants that were in the area to harvest stuff from shipwrecks, they entered and raised the Argentine flag at South Georgia Island. And on the 25th, the British, in response, dispatched the Royal Naval vessel, the HMS Endurance. The Argentine government, suspecting that the UK was going to be sending reinforcements, they decided, okay, we're going to need to speed this up. We need to be faster, and they decided on a full-on invasion. Which now finally, from all this background, that now brings us to the invasion itself. Where does the United States play into this? I'll talk about it a little bit more later, but I genuinely think from over the course when I was doing research for this podcast, and I'll explain it here at the end, because obviously this is for the patrons so they can hear what it is that I'm talking about. The support that the United States showed Britain during this conflict broke a lot of its trust with people in Latin America. There was already conflicts from before, but I'll explain later when we talk about why Argentina thought that the United States would actually support them in this effort and how it was like a it was like a catch 22. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. No matter what, the United States was going to be stepping on someone's toes and arguably for its future relations and what it wanted in South America, it may have chose wrong. Isolationism sometimes. Yeah, it gets real messy, I guess. Yeah, it gets real messy. So on the 1st of April, 1982, the Argentine forces launched Operation Rosario, which began with the disembarkation of the destroyer, the ARA Santisma Trinidad. And the next day, the Argentinians would invade the Falklands Islands with amphibious landings. The Argentine forces would then encounter some nominal defenses under the command of Major Mike Norman of the Royal Marines, organized by Sir Rex Hunt, the governor of the Falkland Islands. The invasion that was launched involved a strike on Moody Brook Barracks and an engagement with the troops that were under the command of Bill Trollope at Stanley. And very quickly, the Argentinians made rapid progress, considering how few forces that they actually had there. A final engagement at the government house would precede Governor Hunt's decision to surrender. And when this happened, Argentina was static. Thousands of people flooded into the streets and crowded the Plaza de Mayo in Buenos Aires to cheer Galtieri and the government and glory to Argentina that this was the grand victory that they needed. Finally, the Falklands was back in their hands. But. There's always a but. There's always a but. There's always a but when we tell these stories. The invasion was based on a delusion. Galtieri was certain that Britain was going to simply accept the fait accompli, the the grand, bold maneuver that he had done in order to seize the islands, that a military engagement here was not going to be worth it, and what he had done was the decisive thing that was going to settle the issue once and for all, and they would just accept it. They weren't going to send an armada 7,500 miles over in order to recapture these windswept territory little rocks that were still... 230 miles off of Argentina's coast? They're not going to do something like that. Yeah, he was wrong. The other thing that he was counting on at the time was that he thought that America would actually support them because his junta, 
the thing that he was in charge of, that was a key American ally in the region as an anti-communist force of the Reagan administration. Remember how there was the whole thing about America over the course of the 60s, 70s, and 80s propping up military governments inside of Latin America in order to fight against communist guerrillas and forces? Yeah. Yeah, that his was one of those. Okay, so I'm assuming this whole thing made people wary of helping the United States because they couldn't rely on them for support. Sort of, yeah, yeah. See, because here's the issue. Remember the whole thing with the uh, Monroe Doctrine? Where yeah. the idea of it, for anyone who is unfamiliar that is listening, the Monroe Doctrine is a centuries-old idea within the United States that the United States is the hegemon of the Western Hemisphere and that it will not brook any European interference, or not even European, but any outside interference in North or South America, whether that comes from Britain, whether it comes from Russia, whether it comes from China, anyone, America would protect any of its Latin American allies slash dependents and would make sure that they remained free and independent from these outside influences. So, with the idea of the Monroe Doctrine and how that had been pushed for years, the junta had assumed that this was just another step in decolonization. That since the United States had been pushing for this for years and Britain had been decolonizing its territory, that for many of the people in Latin America, this was just the next step. That what would end up happening is that America would side with Argentina even though it was basically a fascist dictatorship. I'm not going to, I shouldn't say the term fascist, actually, but it was a military dictatorship with horrible human rights abuses in comparison to America's very good NATO ally and friend and much more similar compatriot, Britain. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they assumed that they would still side with them because of the, because of the Monroe Doctrine, but that didn't happen. So really, Gabby, no matter which side they choose, America was going to end up betraying one of its, quote, supporters or allies. Really, it was, again, a situation of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And what they chose ended up alienating a lot of people across Latin America, supporting the British in this case. And the British were now ready to retaliate. In response to the Argentine Marines' actions on South Georgia, the British would also dispatch the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, or RFA, Fort Austin, as well as HMS Spartan in late March. And as the Argentinians invaded on the 2nd of April, there were emergency meetings that were called for in British Cabinet and the House of Commons, and approval was then granted to form a task force in order to liberate the islands. And so it was, then, that under the leadership of British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, that Operation Corporate was launched with Admiral Sir John Fieldhouse as the commander of the task force. A bipartisan war cabinet was also established by the British government on the 6th of April in order to guide the war effort and review the ongoing military developments. Do you want to know one of the more interesting things about this at this time? That this is genuinely, in my opinion, the most hilarious part about all this? What is it? The war for this was started specifically by Argentina in order to shore up their own political support and cement things within the population, right? And they assumed that Britain just wouldn't respond. Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Maiden of Britain, had to respond because already in Britain, her government was experiencing a lot of problems. She was becoming less and less popular every year. She was a, she's a very controversial 
figure in terms of British history. And I know for a number of people that are listening to this, especially any who are Irish, that uh, Margaret Thatcher is someone that for many people leave a very, very sour taste in their mouth. She did a lot to dismantle a lot of the social systems within Britain that people relied upon. And this made her a very unpopular figure. So knowing that something like this was happening and needing a win for her government, uh, the Iron Maiden dove into this fully. They were not willing to just back down because that would have made them look even weaker and they needed a political win too. So you have two powers that both needed a big political victory and now they are coming together to a head. Yeah. That's going to go well. Exactly. So, in the meantime to all of this, the British ambassador to the United Nations, Sir Anthony Parson, would manage to call an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council and would procure a resolution that was amenable to the British military response to the Argentine invasion. By a vote of 10 to 1, the council would adopt the United Nations Security Council Resolution 502, which called for the removal of the Argentine forces. Funny detail about all this, though. It wasn't a call for the removal of all military forces to, you know, return to the status quo. It was a call to just remove the Argentine forces, which thereby from this loophole would permit the British to strike the Argentine occupiers as an act of self-defense and then occupy the islands themselves. Because, well, that's what the resolution provided them. Which brings us to the British task force. The task force that was dispatched by the British government included 62 merchant ships, 22 Royal Fleet auxiliary ships, and 43 Royal Navy vessels. Moreover, the British had around 14 Harrier GR3s and 28 Sea Harriers that were available for air combat, while Argentina's forces seemed to be significantly larger, with 122 serviceable jet fighters. If anything, the British looked like they were severely outnumbered. One of the things that they also lacked was Airborne Early Warning and Control Aircraft, AEW and C, which would be very important for a, uh, for a fight like this. Furthermore, making the situation worse, the British were occupying, or not occupying, they were operating something along the lines of seven to 8,000 miles from home. So an assessment from the U.S. Navy concluded when they were looking in on this, like, hey, um... The British counter-invasion is just not going to succeed. Looking at this from the outside world, yes, Britain had the more advanced forces, but considering the logistical issues that they were facing, the United States didn't really think that they were going to be able to succeed. But history is always a little bit more complex than that, and every good plan that one has, even as foolproof as you may think that it is, will always hit the fan, and turn to shit the moment fighting actually starts. That's uh, one of the stories of whatever happens whenever a conflict actually breaks out. So the Royal Air Force manages to establish an air base of RAF on Ascension Island by mid-April. And around this time, the Naval Task Force also arrives at Ascension in order to prepare for the war. The British Task Force during its travel southward was then shadowed by an unarmed Boeing 707 aircraft of the Argentine Air Force and though some of the aircraft were intercepted, none of them were attacked because at this time, there was still the possibility that a diplomatic solution was going to be able to be reached. They were trying to still talk with Argentina to see what was going to happen and if they could resolve this peacefully. But no. 
Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. This then leads to the total exclusion zone, the TEZ. So on the 12th of April, 1982, the United Kingdom declares a Maritime Exclusion Zone, or MEZ, covering a circle radius approximately 230 miles from the center of the Falkland Islands on the 12th of April. The British government indicated that any Argentine warship or naval auxiliary that entered the MEZ was going to be attacked. On the 23rd of April, they expanded this, probably in response to the use of the Boeing 707 aircraft by Argentina to shadow the task force, They clarified that any Argentine aircraft or ship that was considered to be a threat to British forces anywhere would be attacked. And this was updated further on the 30th of April when they would declare a total exclusionary zone, which covered the same area as the MEZ. And this means that any aircraft, no matter what it was, what nation it was a part of, anything, if they were in the zone, they would be attacked. Exactly. They were declaring it a war zone. Yeah, this is a little overkill. Mm-hmm. They were trying to keep all outside forces and make sure that the Argentinians couldn't sneak in forces or other things disguised on other ships. Oh, yeah, I understand why they did it. It was very smart, but still, wow. Yeah. yeah. And so finally, on the 7th of May, 1982, the British government would further extend the TEZ to include an area within 14 miles of the Argentine coast. It wasn't just about the islands at this point. They were going to make sure that any Argentine forces that left shore were going to be attacked if they even tried to move towards a position where they could potentially reinforce. Which brings us to South Georgia, not even the Falkland Islands at this point. What we saw here was Operation Paraket to recapture the South Georgian island, and this was carried out under the command of Major Guy Sheridan. The South Georgia force would comprise of Marines from the 42nd Commando and troops from the Special Air Services, the SAS as well as the Special Boat Services, the SBS. The SA troops would land on the 21st of April, and then British forces would launch a strike on the 24th of April. And after devastating the forces there at the time, they they were able to seize things rather quickly, including taking out an Argentine submarine, the ARA Santa Fe, on the 25th of April. Major Sheridan would take his 76 men on a forced march and would succeed. Following a naval bombardment demonstration by the Antrim and Plymouth, which were two Navy vessels, the Argentine forces would surrender without resistance. There was simply nothing that they could do at the time. British forces at South Georgia then sent a message back to London that, quote, the white ensign flies alongside the Union Jack in South Georgia. And Margaret Thatcher would break the news to the public, asking the people of Britain to, quote, 
congratulate our forces and the Marines. It was the first victory for Britain. What followed after this was something called Operation Black Buck. The British operations on the Falkland Islands would begin then fully on the 1st of May with the Royal Air Force Vulcan bombers from Ascension launching an attack on the runway at Port Stanley, as well as the radar facilities that were close by, in order to try and knock out any of the anti-air capabilities of the Argentinians. In the meantime, the Harriers would manage to shoot down three Argentine aircraft on their own, and as a result of these raids, the Argentines concluded that even if they had more aircraft, that their forces were open to attack at Port Stanley, and they did something incredibly stupid. Instead of risking the fight to try and maintain their forces to be able to do anything in the region, they withdrew all of their aircraft to air bases back on the mainland. Really? Yes. Keep in mind, we're talking about something that is 230 miles away. Yeah. So assuming that you have a jet that I'm not even sure of the speed of one of these things that we're talking about here, I'm going to guess somewhere along the lines of 600 miles an hour, think of something along those lines. That still means it's going to take, from the time that an attack occurs, 20 minutes minimum that it would take in order to be able to fly, if you were already flying, from the airbase to get to the Falkland Islands. So any time Argentine forces would come under attack from then on out, air responses were always going to be late. Because they had to fly from the mainland, the island, which used a lot of time. It used a lot of energy and it used a lot of resources in terms of fuel. Because once they flew to the islands, you only had a limited amount of time that they would be able to fight before they had to turn around because otherwise they wouldn't have fuel to get back home. Do they have those planes that can refuel in midair? You know, they probably did, but it wasn't going to be something that was going to be helpful for a combat situation. Also, a lot of resources again to use. Oh, yeah. Again, a lot of resources. It just wasn't something that was going to be good. So, due to fuel concerns as well as time constraints, Argentine forces for the remainder of this fight were going to have a severe disadvantage, and that is only talking about aircraft here in the first place. The British naval forces that were operating on submarines and surface vessels close to the Falklands would soon engage the Argentine fleet. And so on the 2nd of May, the HMS Conqueror would spot and fire three torpedoes at Argentina's World War II vintage light cruiser, the ARA General Belgrano, which... Fun fact about that, the Belgrano was actually a ship that was purchased from the United States. And that was, again, a World War II cruiser from 20 years earlier. Actually, no, at this point, we're talking 40 years earlier. So the Belgrano was struck twice and subsequently sunk, which killed 323 members of its crew. It was easily the worst immediate disaster that Argentina would face over the course of this war. And as a result, the entire Argentine fleet with the exception of the ARA San Luis, would withdraw to their bases and did not return to the conflict. In retaliation, two days later, an Argentine superextended fighter would attack the HMS Sheffield with an Exocet anti-ship missile, and that explosion would hit and set the destroyer ablaze, but it only cost the British around 20 lives. Which, if you're talking about things in terms of a trade-off, obviously it's terrible that it happened, but 20 lives versus 323, that is a very big difference in kill-death uh, ratio that we're talking about there. It is not looking good from the Argentinas from the very start. But back to the islands. What would follow next 
is the raid on Pebble Island. If you recall before when we were talking about the SAS, like the the special British forces, they had their own job of what they were going to be trying to do here. Their operatives were assigned the task of launching an attack on the aircraft that were on the ground of Pebble Island because Argentina still had some there. This was one of these smaller Falkland Islands that was north of West Falkland. And on the night of the 14th of May, two Westland Sea King HC-4 helicopters were dispatched with 45 of D Squadron members to infiltrate the airfield. And following their intrusion, which they managed to sneak in just quietly and fine, the raiding team lay charges on seven of the aircraft and then would open fire on them with L1A1 rockets and small arms. So these guys snuck in, they planted explosives onto these planes without getting caught, and then as they stepped back, they set off the charges, pulled out some, like, launchers, and just blew them up. In the meantime, the Glamorgan, which is uh, another one of the destroyers that the British had, it would unleash high-explosive rounds on Argentine positions, shelling them. And it was only after the raiding team had regrouped that the Argentinians then turned around and actually started to engage them. During the ensuing firefight, one British soldier was wounded while the Argentine commanding officer was killed, but there wasn't any other damage to personal life. The raiding team would then manage to fall back this being after being able to destroy 11 Argentine aircraft and were exfiltrated successfully before daybreak. It was a stunning success of a raid. One wounded man to 11 destroyed aircraft. Again, things are not looking good for the Argentinians. This would be followed by the Battle of San Carlos. Because from the 21st of May until the 25th of May, a battle between ships and aircraft would occur as low-flying Argentine jets would have to launch repeated attacks on British ships as the British were seeking to land on the shores of San Carlos water. The British warships would incur most of the strikes, but they would succeed in keeping the landing ships relatively safe from the Argentine strike aircraft. Moreover, several procedural problems ended up crippling the Argentine efforts because a bunch of the bombs that they were using were either old or faulty or something else was going on with them that they just straight up didn't work. Like there were 13 bombs that struck British ships and then just did not detonate at all. There's actually a funny little detail about this that this is reminding me of that I saw here. Remember the, 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 the uh, you sent me the TikTok of the whole thing with Ukraine seizing the, the rockets Korean that were rocket. sent from North Korea. Yep. And yeah. using it on Russia. Step back. We have no idea what these things are going to do because they were such poor quality that they could just explode off in random different directions and you had no idea where they were actually going to go. That was the equivalent of what was happening with these Argentine bombs. They just straight up were not working. The British would sustain considerable losses, but they were able to still land their troops, which would bring us to the Battle of Goose Green. So having landed on the Falklands, approximately 500 British troops would engage the Argentine forces on the 28th and the 29th of May on Goose Green and Darwin, which were settlements in Lafonia in East Falkland. With artillery, support, er, with artillery support from the Royal Artillery and fire support from the HMS Arrow, the British were able to attack the 12th Infantry Regiment of Argentina, which was in a well-defended position, but still within attacking distance of the San Carlos water. Unfortunately, during this time for the British, during a solo charge against the Argentine machine gun post that was up there, 
the British commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Jones, would be killed, and this guy would be posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross for his valor. The long firefight would then result in the deaths of 47 Argentine soldiers and 17 British soldiers. Finally, the British commanding officer, Chris Keeble, would decide to call for an unconditional Argentine surrender. And if the Argentines did not surrender, the British threatened to bombard Darwin and flatten Goose Green. Of course, seeing how they had no air support, they had no naval support, they had no kind of support whatsoever, the Argentine garrison realized that this whole thing was going to be inevitable. There was nothing they could do in order to stop it. And so they officially decided to surrender, and 961 Argentine troops were taken as prisoners of war. Following the Argentine surrender, the British would go and dispatch Gurkhas in helicopter-borne operations to hunt down any of the remaining patrols in the region that were still moving. And this, I, when doing the research for this and covering this part, all I could imagine was Gurkhas moving in there like predators. You know, like, like an alien versus predator. They're just sent in in the helicopter across the island searching for little patrols that are still trying to harass British positions. They would land them, strike, take them all out, get out of there. Fast, clean, efficient, because the Gurkhas, my God, I feel like I need to do a podcast episode on them. They are elite. As an example of this, the British would encounter a 10-man Argentine patrol and later deploy 20 Gurkhas to clear their outpost in an abandoned farmhouse. The spot was designed as an ideal place which they could, be, they could actually launch SA-7 missiles at British aircraft and still be kind of protected which is then the assault on Mount Kent. In the meantime, 42 commandos would decide to enter Mount Kent by helicopter while Argentine commandos as well as blowpipe surface-to-air missiles would be transported to Stanley on the 27th and the 28th of May. And during the week that would follow, you'd have intense patrol battles. Not major fights, not anything that would break out in terms of large-scale operations, just small, quick, intense patrol battles between small groups of forces that would be fought over and over again with the British forces comprising of the, the SAS and the three commando brigades Mountain and Arctic Warfare Cadre, and the Argentine operation incorporated extensive helicopter use to try and support the patrols, and it didn't work. See, here's the thing. Helicopters, at this point, when you have no air support, you have nothing that is able to take out any of the enemy troops that potentially have anti-air missiles, you're talking about something that is basically going to be a sitting duck. And so on the 30th of May, from the vicinity of Mount Kent, the SAS would fire an FIM-92 Stinger surface-to-air missile and destroyed an SA-330 Puma helicopter, killing all six Argentine special operators on board. The Argentine special forces, much like all of their regular forces, they were losing the fight. That all being said, it wouldn't go poor in every single spot. Like, I know that I've, as I've been telling the story, that every single instance that we have been talking about any of this, the Argentinians definitely did not come out on top. But there was at least one incident where the British really did screw up, and that was at Bluff Cove and Fitzroy. Because what ended up happening here is that Argentine airstrikes against the British Navy would continue over this time period, claiming around 56 lives. 
and on the 2nd of June, a small group of two para were moved into Westland Scout helicopters to Swan Inlet House. And after discovering that Fitzroy was clear of Argentinians, another contingent of two para was requested for Fitzroy and Bluff Cove. But this advance was very uncoordinated. It was very poorly done. And because it was so incredibly stretched out, this would create 30-something miles of indefensible positions that there was simply nothing that the British could actually do in there. Moreover, since they were so incredibly indecisive about it and were constantly disagreeing with each other about the landing at Bluff Cove, this was only going to give the Argentinians an opportunity to strike. And so this delay turned the two landing ship logistics, the LSLs, into easy targets for the Argentine A-4 Skyhawks. And as expected, when, you know, you're literally sitting there as a sitting duck, on the 8th of June, the Argentinians would carry out airstrikes, killing 48 and wounding 115 British soldiers in what would later be called the disaster at Port Pleasant. It was an incredibly stupid move. But that was not something that was going to be able to stop the British. Despite the heavy losses at Bluff Cove, the British would continue to advance. And following through, like thorough reconnaissance, on the night of the 11th of June, the British would unleash a brigade-sized attack on the heavily guarded ring of high ground around Stanley. And with gunfire support from the Royal Navy ships, the three commander brigades would simultaneously strike in the battles of two sisters, Mount Harriet and Mount Longden. And while the objectives for the first two encounters were captured, the Battle of Mount Longden would only continue to escalate. British forces had to press through mortar fire, machine gun fire, Rifle fire, sniper fire, artillery fire, it was a massive firefight. And after both sides had suffered great losses, the British objectives would eventually be secured. As an example of one of the things that occurred during this, the British Sergeant uh, Ian McKay was killed with a grenade attack upon an Argentine bunker and would posthumously be rewarded the Victoria Cross. In the process of storming it, he would be one of the last people to be killed, but there were still a few others. On the 13th of June, a second phase of assault would begin as the Scots Guard would liberate Mount Tumbledown, thereby breaching the last natural line of Argentine defenses. And soon, the Argentine town defenses at Stanley would crumble, and it became obvious to the General Mario Menendez that his position just was not something that could be defended. It was utterly hopeless. And so it was that on the 14th of June that he would surrender. He had 9,800 troops at his disposal, and he would surrender them all to British General Jeremy Moore, thereby ending the war. Though I say ending the war, this was never actually a war that was fully declared. It would at least end the fighting of this undeclared conflict. And on the night of the 14th of June, British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher would announce the news to the House of Commons and would subsequently join the celebrating crowds in Downing Street, where there was just a massive party going on because of this. Six days later, on the 20th of June, the British would send 42 commando Royal Marines to liberate the South Sandwich Islands. And the Argentine military personnel there would just surrender, raising a white flag, and there would be no casualties from this. It was over. The whole thing was a terribly awful embarrassment for Argentina. The war cost the lives of around 258 British soldiers and 649 Argentinans. Around 777 British forces were wounded, 
while over a thousand Argentinians incurred injuries, with another 11,000 of them captured. In the United Kingdom, the British victory would seal the re-election of, Thatch- of the Thatcher government in a landslide. Remember, as I said before from the beginning, Thatcher was a unpopular, if you want to say that, but more so extremely controversial figure at this time, and no one really knew what was going to happen with her government. The fact that this victory occurred and it was such an incredible landslide in Britain's favor essentially cemented her government. Moreover, the islanders would be granted full British citizenship in 1983, and the UK would start making significant investments and improvements in the economy of the Falkland Islands, binding it closer to them. As for Argentina, Galtieri would not last. He was the head of the ruling junta, and he was compelled to resign. Democracy would be restored to the nation, but it was never something that was stable or happy. Though the Falkland Islands would remain committed to British sovereignty and self-determination, Argentina still to this day does claim control of the Falklands and South Georgia. This is something that it refuses to give up as it considers it to be part of its indefensible and integral territory, something that cannot be lost. The government of the United Kingdom maintains that the islanders have the right to determine for themselves what their sovereignty is. And that is something that, as I talked about earlier, for a lot of their policies, still is something that continues to this day. The Falklanders have continuously rejected any kind of overtures for Argentina to join them. And in the last referendum, they voted literally 99.8% to not go with Argentina and to stay a part of the British Empire. Or not empire, but, you know, stay a part of Britain. And that really is the end of the Falkland Island War. It's something that is still somewhat controversial, and you'll see a lot of jokes in comments, especially with any figures that are in Latin America. And Gav, as I talked about earlier with all this, it is still something that poisoned U.S. relations, as the United States may not have contributed troops on the ground or anything like that. But over the course of this entire conflict, the United States was providing reconnaissance and supply and information to Britain about Argentine forces. So even if not direct, they were still aiding Britain, and it was seen as a betrayal. But that is the end of the Falklands Island War. It was an interesting ride. Yes, it was. I didn't have much to say because I didn't want to interrupt the flow of the story. Well, truth be told, in the background, it's something that it makes a lot of sense where we're going back and forth talking about things. But after that, going into immediately the sequence of events, unless something really stupid happened, it's just battle, 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 each and every single thing occurring in this. And I, I get that. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. I hope you all really did enjoy the episode. I apologize if at any point over the course of this, I messed things up in terms of pronunciation. I was trying here, but at different points, I may have slipped. Okay, so before we go, we have to include our family history. And this one was sent in by Sophia. And she says, hi, I adore your podcast. It's my go-to for any time I want to listen to something. I know you tell family histories on the podcast, so I thought I might try and get mine told. This is a story of my great-grandparents, Camilla and Frederick Flanagan. Camilla was an independent woman in the 1950s to 60s, being unmarried and with a job as a teacher in her 40s. She was born and grew up in Whitby, Ontario, but worked in a town. I have completely forgotten the name of the town, so now (laughs) it is the town at a Catholic school. She met my grandfather and they fell in love, and he was also in his 40s. He grew up in Nova Scotia and was previously married to a woman. But this marriage was very short-lived because he came home one day to find her, quote-unquote, entertaining men. But not in the good way. 
He later Wait, moved. Men? Like not just a man, but men? Yeah. Oh. It says entertaining men, not oh. in the good way. Uh. So he later moved to Ontario where he met Camilla. He was at the age to be enlisted in the military during the Second World War, but he had such poor eyesight that they wouldn't let him in. <laughs> he later also developed cancer in his eye and had to have it removed. Oh, that's so sad. When the two fell in love, they, of course, wanted to get married. But Camilla's father, which was my great great grandfather, did not approve of it for whatever reason. And he wouldn't let them get married. They dedicated to getting married, went to the priest to get married, and they completely ignored this disapproval. But the priest, who was not a nice person, according to my grandmother, told them no. And in a fit of rage, my grandfather picked up a rosary and threw it at him, which is a huge no-no in the Catholic religion. Uh-huh. They were still very dedicated to getting married. So no matter what, they were doing it in the Catholic Church. They went to Toronto to see the cardinal who was there. She says she's not sure why, to ask him what to do. The cardinal said to my grandparents, do you live in town? Do you work in town? Is there a church in town? If so, yes, get married there. So they did. They also put in the paper that they were getting married because that's what you did back then. I think Mm -hmm. even when my parents got married, you'd put it in the newspaper. Yeah. And when her father found out, he tried to sue the paper because he hadn't given his blessing. (laughs) This obviously didn't work. And they had a small wedding with Frederick's sister and Camilla's sister, brother and mother who went in secret and they all attended. They later had two daughters, my grandmother as the eldest. And lived a relatively happy life, although they had little to no connection with Camilla's family. Yeah, it makes sense. Camilla later got breast cancer and had to have it removed surgically, which back then was a terrible operation. She was still working at a Catholic school and the awful priest that I had mentioned asked her a day after the operation when she would come back to work. She unfortunately died when my grandmother was 13. When Camilla died, the already rocky connection that they had with Camilla's family completely disappeared and we have completely lost connection with them after she died frederick also died due to heart problems only two years later leaving my 15 year old grandmother to care for her and her little sister she was 14 they had a happy and eventful start but it ended a bit tragically they now rest side by side in a cemetery in whitby ontario i hope you enjoy this story and i can't wait to see what you have up your sleeve in the future oh that started off really sweet and funny and then it ended so sad, but at least they're together. At least they are together. That, that is a really touching story. And I mean, hell, we've talked about stories for all the time over the course of history that they all kind of blend together to tell a seamless story of humanity. Not everything is happy. Not everything is sad. But it all kind of tells the story of us. And in that case, that's the story that was the foundation of you and your family. Thank you so much for sending that in, Sophia. I appreciate all of you. Thank you very much. And goodbye. Bye.